That's always a debate in the office every week. How many bulletins should we print this week? Summer is especially difficult, as you can imagine. It's hard to predict your travel schedules. We just don't know. And so we're glad that you're here. So uh, I guess that's a good thing. There you are. Casey and Jen Bedell are here. I'm sorry I'm going to embarrass you, but I'm going to point you out. Casey and Jen are here. Uh, They have been some of our missionaries, so to speak, domestic missionaries working in Washington, D.C. with Ministry to State. And the Bedells are now moving cross-country from Washington, D.C. to uh, the Seattle, Washington area. Uh, Casey has taken a call to be an assistant pastor in a church out there. And uh, so, guys, I'm glad you're here. I knew that we talked on the phone this week, and I knew they might be here today. So, welcome. Uh, If you would, take a look at Psalm 11 with me. That's where we are this morning, and it's on page 6 of your bulletin. Hopefully you have one now. And uh, on New Year's Eve, 1999, you who are old enough are going to remember this. The world, much of it anyway, held its collective breath. Do you remember? The Y2K bug, the millennium bug, as, as we called it. You know, not anticipating the challenge, the change of, of millennium. Uh, uh, the computers had been programmed to recognize the year just by the last two digits and not all four of them. And so once that was realized there was sort of a a panicked rush to fix the problem before computers changed their date from 99 to 00 which just wouldn't follow and it might have crashed the whole thing and and uh you know it 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 didn't happen it was there was concern that at midnight on that night that that all of the the systems banking and security and manufacturing and military and so on might just crash well it didn't happen of course the fixes maybe took hold But the world was nervous, remember? Because the foundations upholding all that mattered to the world seemed to be shaky. Well, with no concern whatsoever with computers, David here has the same kind of experience in Psalm 11. And with wisdom, he quickly finds a strong place to stand. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul... Flee like a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we again acknowledge that uh, unless you give us your spirit, unless you come and join us and... Um, open our eyes, that we will be blind. If you don't open our hearts and our minds, we will be confused and, uh, and unsure. But Father, we trust you and we know that you do come among us. We know that you do speak through your word. And we know that you do long for your children to understand you, to in fact see you face to face. And so we pray, Father, that this morning you would allow for that, that you would make that to happen. And make us new 
in your image yet again today by your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This psalm, like so many of them, does not give us a particular historical setting in which to understand it. That's, of course, very common among the Psalter. There are not too many of them that do that. I think that uh, that, that might be on purpose. Um, you know, the Lord allows for us in these particular cases to have some latitude of application, to recognize that this psalm applies not just to a potential national calamity, but it even applies to the smaller personal problems, which to you may not be that small. In May of 1980, I graduated from the fifth grade. And I remember that well because on graduation, so to speak, day from fifth grade, my best friend and I, anticipating moving to the bigger middle school the next year, and then being the youngest of students there at that school and, and in the hallways with all the big kids, you know, we, my best friend and I made a pact with each other. And we agreed that even though during the course of the summer we were going to be mostly separated by neighborhoods, we wouldn't be separated by friendship. And when we came back to that big school in the fall, we were still going to be best friends. And we made a pact. And in order to, I guess you could say, we wouldn't use this word at that time, but covenant our pact together... We each put on an athletic wristband on our wrist. And we agreed, that will not leave my wrist all summer long. And it didn't. Now, I didn't think ahead or realize what might happen in that sort of thing over the course of a hot, sunny summer where a young child is outside all the time in the sun and getting sunburned and suntanned and turning darker and darker brown except for those parts of his body that are covered. And by the end of the summer, I had a white band of skin around my wrist that was just as clear as you could see it from the back of the theater. I hadn't anticipated that. My friend had very fair skin. He didn't have this problem, but I did. And as the end of the summer began to approach, I began to realize I have a problem. I can't wear this wristband to school. That'll look kind of stupid. And the old kids might think I'm strange for wearing a wristband to school. But I can't not wear it either because I've got a white band of skin around my arm that doesn't match anything else. And what am I going to do? I was terrified. What are they going to think? What are they going to say to me? What are they going to do to me? I was terrified. It was one of my early experiences with the fear of man. I, I didn't know to call it that at the time, but I was terrified of these older kids. And the first day of school arrived, and I was scrambling, wondering, what am I going to do? Everything that was secure about my life at that point, as far as I could see it, was about to crumble. And I felt sick. I felt sick at my stomach, and, and I just wanted to flee to the mountains or at least to hide in my room, or something, so that I wouldn't have to go to school and face these older kids and my unusual arm. And then my mother, of course, mercifully intervened, as miraculous mothers do so often, and she anticipated this day. I think she had seen it coming. And she took me aside and pulled out her makeup kit and got some tan blush, just the color of my darker skin, and she painted my wrist And nobody ever knew it, or at least nobody ever said anything. 
It's one of the life's most embarrassing moments for me. Now, you can't go away from here and tell your friends that your pastor did this. That's still embarrassing to me. One of life's most fearful moments, perhaps, even for me. Now, I strongly suspect that David, in writing this psalm, whatever it was that he faced, had to be far more intimidating than simply the ridicule of middle schoolers. I don't know what it was. But whatever it was, it was a real threat. It was an imminent danger. And with counsel coming to him from the outside, and with some degree of wisdom coming to him from the inside, David had a decision to make. What would he do if the foundations of life as he knew it in this world came crashing down? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? That's the pivotal question of this psalm. And David, as he reflects on it and lived it in experience, shows us that there are really two options to consider. One is that the righteous can take the counsel of the fearful, which is to flee. Now, the psalm begins almost like it's in the middle of a conversation. Did you notice that? It's almost like it's right in the middle of a conversation that David is having with someone else. Some advisor is speaking to David about the situation, whatever it might be, and offering him counsel. And the counsel that they give, evidently, is something like this. David, the sky is falling. David, look, there are forces beyond your control out there. And they have even fitted their arrow to the string. They've bent the bow and they're ready to strike you down in the dark no matter how upright in heart you think you might be, David. Your military aspirations are done. Your cultural comforts are ruined. Your theological anchors have been cut free. David, they're going to do more than just ridicule you. They're going to destroy you. You and the foundations of life as you know it. So, David, flee. Flee like a bird to the mountain. This is the counsel of the fearful. It's the the counsel that came into David's ear in these moments of whatever desperate situation it was. And it's very common counsel. It's counsel that you maybe are even hearing this week whether from other people outside of you or from your own heart and mind. You hear this counsel all the time in situations that you might face. Now, fear, just to be clear, is a very important emotion for us. In fact, it's a a crucial element of what it really means to be a human being living life in a fallen world. Trimper Longman is a a Bible scholar who has written about these things along with a counselor friend of his. And he's written about the Psalms and the emotions that they express and teach us about from our own souls and the experience of the biblical writers. And he explains regarding fear, he says, it's really a whole lot like pain. As an emotional sensation, it's much like pain is a physical sensation. Both of them warn you of danger. So, some months after my wristband debacle was all cleared up, it was October, Halloween was approaching, and 
it was 1980, and I sat down in the living room on Halloween evening with my older siblings, and cable television had just begun to broadcast that movie, Halloween. Now, I'm no horror movie fan. I, I'm too squeamish for such things, but at the time, I didn't totally realize that. And I sat down with them to watch this movie, and as the movie began to unfold, some of you, well, most of you probably know what it's about, and if you don't know what it's about, then you don't need to watch it. I sat down to watch this movie with my older siblings, and as I began to realize what it was all about and what was happening as the movie unfolded, I picked up the sports page of the newspaper and opened it up in front of my face. (laughs) I didn't want to stand up and walk away and say, I'm too scared of this. That would have been cowardly to do. So I just covered my eyes with the newspaper and pretended like I was reading about the baseball scores or the basketball scores. And my siblings gave me a hard time about it. Every now and then I'd pull the newspaper down just to look and see, and then I'd put it back up. I was terrified. I was was fearful. And that fear was warning me of something. Fear is helpful because it helps you to avoid harm. In my case, it was helping me to avoid nightmares, perhaps, that I might have had and I didn't want. So it's very important, but it's also very revealing because what you fear is driven by what you value. It's driven by what's important to you, and we all value different things at different times in our lives according to different circumstances that arise, and so our fears take on different shapes. But one thing is always in common with our fears. We fear what we can't control. That's always an element of it. So think about some of the the basic sort of things that, that, that bring that about for you. You know, one of them might be, what do people think of me? Some of you worry about that. Some of you maybe don't. But we all have at different points along the way. What do people think of me? We, we live in a world of resumes and of social media in which people can broadcast their, their experiential resume to everyone else and we compare ourselves with one another. We're all climbing ladders all the time. You even see it, I think, and maybe it's really pronounced. I, I see it and, and I hope I'm right in saying this, but in the presidential campaign, you know, it seems to me more and more that candidates for president often are running just out of the effort to build their own resume to preserve an appearance of power and control, not being so interested perhaps to actually serve the country in humility, but simply to assert themselves so that others will think certain things about them. And if it's happening on that level, then it's surely happening on our level We're certainly doing that, too. We're concerned. We're afraid of what people think of us. What about this one? What if I fail? Fear of failure is so common. And again, some of you, maybe this is not something you lose sleep over, but if you're in high school, you worry about this every semester. You're literally wondering, what if I fail this semester? What if I fail a class and and can't move along? The bad news is that beyond high school, the stakes only get higher. And the pressure maybe even increases a bit as we move on in life. You know, maybe you anticipate college or maybe you wish that you did and you don't have the means for furthering your education. And so the chances of failure in life just increase. Or maybe you don't have the privilege of family connections to a certain area of work and jobs. And so your your chances for failure just increase. Or if you do have a job, Maybe you recognize by now that your career, your job status may just depend on someone more powerful than you, a boss, 
out of whose favor you could fall at any moment. You can't control that. What about parents? Here's another one. How will my children mature? How will my children turn out? How will they grow up? What will they be like when they grow up? Parents worry about this all the time. And in the words of a wise counselor, you can keep your yard growing green and free from entanglement of weeds, but you cannot ensure that your children will grow in the Lord and be free from the entanglement of sin. Parents cannot control that, and so they fear it. They're afraid of it. We fear what we can't control. And often that fear becomes not just irrational, but unfaithful. There are biblical examples, of course, of these sorts of things going on, if you think about them. Adam and Eve, the first man and woman in the garden, they, by their disobedience, destroyed the foundations of relationships as God had established them to be. And so, as a result of their fear, they fled, but not like a bird to the mountains, they fled into denial and accusation. They hid in the bushes, literally, and they covered themselves with fig leaves, and they began to deflect the attention and deflect the responsibility that came with their position by pointing fingers at each other and ultimately at God himself. They should have feared, but they should not have fled. What about Jonah, the prophet? I mean, this is a classic example, isn't it? For Jonah, the the foundations of his life were destroyed by God's call to go preach the gospel in Nineveh. In Jonah's mind and in his thinking, that just ruined it. That destroyed the foundations of everything that he thought was normal and good. And so Jonah fled to the sea, which actually was a very arrogant action on his part because he was insisting by his action that he knew better than God. God, you're making a mistake. I'm not going to let you do it, so I'm going to take myself out of the way. And he fled. And then he ended up in Nineveh anyway, and he preached reluctantly, and the Ninevites listened carefully, and they repented. And that destroyed Jonah's foundations even further. And then he secluded himself outside the city and just sulked about it. He was mad because he was so fearful. He fled into bitterness and resentment. And what about the nation of Judah? Corporately, this happens sometimes. We, we fear as a body. The nation of Judah, hundreds of years after David wrote this psalm, had declined in their unfaithfulness, and their enemy Babylon was at the door. And as their enemy came knocking, they, in their fear, fled, again, not to the mountains, but into false piety. They just assumed that God would give credit to them for having the favored city Jerusalem within their bounds. That God would give credit to them for having the favored temple building in their bounds. That God would give them credit for having the rituals in the temple that they had for so long. They presumed upon these things, but their hearts were not with God. All of them were experiencing unrighteous fear. But these examples find modern expression too, of course. You know, it's, it's the fear that some feel when a Christian brother or sister addresses you with some matter about you and your character or your habits that, for a godly person, needs to change. 
Now, they might be wrong. They might have read your situation without all of the information and not understand who you really are and what you're really doing. That might be the case. But they might be right. And in that case, either way, you can respond one of two ways. You can respond by listening with humility, or you can respond by fleeing in fear to self-defense and to counter-accusations and to anger. It's the same unrighteous fear that some feel when gospel fruit begins to spread. Sometimes that, that is a problem for us and a challenge to us to accept. A relative of mine told me recently about her church, a large church that has for some time had a very active outreach into a refugee community, a, a, a cross-cultural community from what this church originally had been. And they were eager and active and reaching out into this community and God gave them success, and, and those families began to attend the church. Many of them, along with their teenagers even, came into the church and got involved in the youth group. And as that news began to settle and the reality of it took place, many of the original families in the church began to leave out of fear that their own teenagers would become friends with these cross-cultural teenagers and the differences would create discomfort in their own families, and so they left. It's also the same unrighteous fear that some feel corporately when light begins to shine on corporate sin. Okay, so a few weeks ago I informed you about our General Assembly's action in regard to, to the civil rights era years ago, that our, our denomination recognized that early churches in our denomination especially at that time, and leaders in particular, had acted in such ways as not to support, but even to obstruct our, our African-American brothers and sisters in their efforts to gain equal rights in our society, rights that they ought to have had simply by having the image of God in them. And our denomination made a statement in that regard of, of, of corporate repentance and acknowledgement of that and desire to... Uh, to see more clearly and to move ahead in grace and faith with our African-American brothers and sisters. And it was a beautiful thing. I even wrote a blog about it. Now, don't expect me to write a blog again. I'm not a blogger, but I even did then. It's still on our website. You can go back and read it so that you can go to the links and see the things that we did. It's an important and huge, I think, effort on our denomination's part. And then last Sunday afternoon, I got a phone call from a pastor friend of mine in another part of Dallas, and he asked me, he said, I'm sorry to bother you on Sunday afternoon, but I got to know, did your church receive flyers distributed on your windshields in the parking lot during your worship service this morning? And I said, I don't think so. I'm not aware of it. Nobody said anything after church about it. And he said, well, ours did, and I know that this other one did, and this other one did. At least three churches, PCA churches, received these flyers, and I'm telling you this now because you might receive it today. Of a group responding against the General Assembly's statement on race with their own statements, actually insisting that segregation of the races is still a very important and biblical and godly effort. That one day in heaven, all the races will be united in the universal church in heaven. But until that day, that's just too big a mountain for us to climb. And so God would keep us separated by race. 
This is the year 2016, and this is Dallas, Texas, and this is happening here. And it is utterly foolish. It's short-sighted, it's selfish, it's everything that you can tag onto it, and it is completely unbiblical and anti-gospel. And here it is, even in our own city, and they even suggesting that our denomination, by making such a stance, is abandoning the Bible and going down the road of, quote, liberalism. I don't mean to stand on a soapbox here today, but I want you to understand that actually could be on your windshield when you go out today. And it is foolishness. It's unrighteous fear fleeing into wild accusations. And God will have none of it. Now, there are times when you have to remove yourself from a situation. And fear may tell you that rightly. So David removed himself from King Saul's reach when the king was unrighteously seeking to kill him. But apparently this psalm was not one of those situations because wisdom tells David there's something much greater than man to fear. Much greater than man to fear. And when you recognize it, as David quickly does here, it leads you to the refuge of the faithful which is, of course, God himself. David refused the counsel of the fearful. He refused them, saying, The Lord is my refuge. How can you even suggest to me that I should flee in fear? He sounds very confident. And how does David counter that counsel? In verse 4, he says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. In other words, I may not know where my circumstances are going to take me, but I do know where my God is. Or I may not feel so sure about the so-called foundations of this world in which I live, but the Lord cannot be moved. It's a huge statement of belief and of faith on David's part here. But it might not be quite where you feel like you can go in such moments yourself. Maybe your faith is not quite so strong as David's was. What does the Bible say about a believer's temptation to fear? Well, here are a few examples. In Isaiah, we read, Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear. Or, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. Or our New Testament Writers tell us, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. Or, as you heard moments ago, there is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. It sounds kind of simple, doesn't it? But is it that simple? Can, can you simply say no to fear? No. You can't. You can't simply say no to fear because it's a present and inevitable reality of living life in a fallen world. It just is. The question, rather, is who do you fear? Or what do you fear? Do you fear this world? Or do you fear the one who made it? Jurassic Park was always one of my favorite movies. I, I love sci-fi-ish sort of movies, and, and I would love it if we could actually create dinosaurs on an island out in the Pacific. I would go. 
But in that movie, you know, one of the interesting things to watch is kind of the development of fear in that movie. And at first, the visitors see the dinosaurs, some of them, and they're amazing and wonderful and majestic, and it's such a, a marvelous thing that they've created these dinosaurs. And then they become intriguing, and some become a little bit scary. You know, the velociraptors are in the, the big iron cage, and the scientist sees that, and he says, you did not make velociraptors. You're, you're, please tell me you didn't do that. Oh, they're in a cage. It's fine. And then they're out in the jungle, and the ground shakes, and the water ripples in the pond, and they look around, and they realize what's coming. Velociraptors are no concern anymore because the Tyrannosaurus Rex is on the loose, and now everybody's afraid because the big fears force out the little fears, don't they? Jesus said something to the same effect in Luke chapter 12, teaching the people who were listening to him. He said to them, listen, I tell you, don't be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But rather, I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the killing of the body has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, fear him. Big fears make little fears go away. And this is what David understands about God in this psalm. He says it here. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who does violence. There is no real concern for the worldly circumstance when the heavenly circumstance is clearly understood. God is the judge who calls evil, evil. And God is the judge who calls good, good. And this is righteous fear. It's a righteous fear that you saw in the life of Abraham who saw the the foundations of his own world shaken and even seemingly destroyed In his mind, when God said to him, Now, Abraham, give me your son Isaac. Take him to the mountain and offer him as a sacrifice, pleasing in my sight. Abraham could only imagine and know what that meant in his worldview. It meant death to his only son. It meant death to the hopes of a family and generations to come, which God had promised him. Abraham knew what that meant, and the foundations were evidently being destroyed and Abraham could have fled but he didn't because God will provide the lamb he insisted God will provide the sacrifice God will provide God will provide he continued to say to himself now was Abraham afraid you bet he was I mean I I can't I can't super-spiritualized Abraham suggests that he had no concerns whatsoever. He had just been told to kill his only son by the God who made him. He had to be fearful. He had to be afraid. But he was afraid of God, not of a knife and not of any man. David, in the same kind of way, saw the foundations of his world seemingly destroyed when his grown son Absalom rebelled against him. David, as he escaped the chaos of the city as Absalom gained power, was 
was removing himself from Absalom's path, and the priests who were on David's side still came to him and actually offered him the Ark of the Covenant. It was that golden box from the temple, which represented God's very presence. And where that Ark was, God was. And the army would carry the Ark with them into to battle, and God was with them. And the priests came and offered David the Ark. Take this with you, and God will be with you. And David, evidently seeing that as manipulation and control, I, I can't control my God wisely refused and he said to the priests he said if the lord favors me then he'll bring me back to his dwelling but let him do to me whatever seems good to him was david afraid you bet he was he was afraid but he was afraid of god he wasn't afraid of any man because he knew that his god who created him was in control and all-powerful and who knew exactly all that was going to take place. And so he could say, let him do to me whatever seems good to him. Now, if you're skeptical of Christianity, then all of this sort of thinking might not do you a whole lot of good. Because you have to ask the question, you know, how can I be loved by a God that I fear? The fear of the Lord is, is kind of confusing to us sometimes. And it's something that we, we wrestle to understand, perhaps. I mean, verse 6 let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and scorching wind. It's, it's judgment straight from the book of Revelation, isn't it? This is a, certainly a God that you fear. How can I be loved by a God that I fear? Well, it's in this. It's because he tests the righteous. David says it here. Abraham and David are just examples of those that he tested. Moses and Isaiah are just examples of those that he tested. But there was, of course, another one who saw the foundations, so to speak, of his world seemingly being destroyed and faced a test for it. In Luke chapter 9, you find what's one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. It's it's such a subtle little verse, but Luke tells us about Jesus at that point. That he turned his face resolutely towards Jerusalem. It's such a simple little detail. You could miss it and wonder, why? why what's, what's the big deal, Luke, telling us that? Oh, there's a reason. Because Jesus knew where he was going, and he set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. He knew where he was going. Luke tells us that Jesus knew the cross awaited him there. Now, do you think that Jesus was afraid? Oh, yeah. I promise you he was afraid. I'm sure that he was afraid. And then when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane with with his sleeping disciples who didn't understand the gravity of the situation, there, sweating as though bleeding. Do you think he was afraid? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was afraid. He was very afraid. But what did he fear? Who did he fear? Do you think he was afraid of Judas? Who was going to come back, he knew, with these soldiers to betray him? Do you think he was afraid of Judas? No way. Do you think he was afraid of the soldiers who Judas would bring along with him, who would, with arms in hand, threaten him and, and arrest him? Do you think he was afraid of the soldiers? No. Do you think he was afraid of the trial that he knew he would face that night before the religious authorities who would unfairly convict him with no evidence whatsoever? No, he wasn't afraid of them either. 
Do you think he was afraid of the nails and the cross that he would face after the excruciating pain of torture that he would endure for hours on end? Do you think he was afraid of those things? No, he wasn't afraid of those things. Do you think he was even afraid of the suffocating moments of hanging on the cross with his lungs crushed under the weight of his own body, unable to breathe, gasping for his last? Do you think he was afraid of anticipating that moment? No. No, he wasn't afraid of that either. Rather, he was afraid of God himself. He feared God for the separation from God that only God himself could decree. And he even spoke it on the cross, quoting a psalmist. You know the words, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what he feared. That's what he was afraid of because he recognized the power of the Father in heaven and the separation that would come from the cross on his own being as a result of our sin that he bore in that place and that time. And he feared, but because he did not flee, we by faith find refuge in God. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Amazing how God orchestrated the the course of redemptive history to come to that place. So many fearful things happening throughout the ages. So many fearful things still happening in our age now. We prayed about some of them earlier this morning. There are so many things in this world to fear. The financial markets are fragile. They could crash and render all your equity value worthless this week if the foundations of your material status were to shake what would you fear or an act of hateful violence could change the shape of your family and your life in an instant if the foundations of your physical safety were to shake what would you fear or the experts could be right that Within a matter of years, there will be no ethnic majority in America. And it will be a a mixed bag of minorities. We'll all be culturally mixed together in literally the salad bowl that our founders imagined. And if the foundations of your cultural comforts were to shake, what would you fear? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? They can fear God, who built all that stands and find refuge in Him. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. And by faith in Jesus, the Son, the upright, will behold His face. Amen and amen. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this and pray that you would increase our faith to trust you. Help us, Lord, to see that you are our refuge and that we do not need to flee in fear because you, as our Heavenly Father, have held us in your very hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.